I'm Graham Rose, and this podcast is my attempt to piece together the unsolved murder of my great-uncle, Fred Jeffs. By re-examining press reports from the time, and more importantly, talking to those who still remember the case. Episode 5 The Witness Who Cannot Talk In the days following the discovery of Fred Jeff's beaten body in Sandwell Valley, the murder investigation is ramping up. But the police cannot identify for certain the location of that initial attack on Fred, or indeed, where the actual killing took place. With each new day that breaks, the police net widens, but the trail of the assailant grows colder. Police progress seems hampered. Hampered by the fact that all the known crime scenes are on constabulary boundaries. Jeff's sweet shop and Wally Woods are on the borders between Birmingham and Worcestershire. Wasson, where the body was recovered, is a few miles north on the Birmingham and Staffordshire border. And Langley, where Fred's van and the dog Perro were spotted separately on the night of the murder, is west, on border territory between Staffordshire and Worcestershire. So, the question of which force deals with which aspect of the investigation has become complicated, to say the least, and political, as Colin of Quinborne Community Association recalls. One of our members here, his father, was a police inspector. At the time, he thinks his father was a police sergeant based in Birmingham. And it was his father that said that when the body was uh, dumped down in Sandwell Valley, it was, they say, two feet over the boundary. The unfounded rumour being that Fred's body had been dragged across the border by Staffordshire officers, shifting responsibility and expense to the Birmingham force. After all, a murder investigation is expensive, these days adding the cost of about a million pounds. The amalgamated West Midlands Police Force that exists today was established when the Metropolitan County was formed in 1974. Up till then, policing of the region was conducted by the many different borough constabularies. Picture back in April 57, a bobby on the beat phoning their home station via a police call box. And then that station calling a second station in a neighbouring constabulary. You get the picture. You met at the station, you prayed for duty, and uh, you were given a, a little slip of paper with the beats on. We didn't have radios. You went to a telephone box and had a load of pennies in your pocket for the A and B button. If they wanted you, they'd ring the telephone box. There were two in Stanley Road. One outside the shop and one on the opposite corner on the, where Hadley Road comes round is one on the corner there. Chief Superintendent Richards of Birmingham CID, in an attempt to improve communications between the rival constabularies, addressed a gathering of 40 senior detectives from the three forces in the oak-panelled conference room at Steelhouse Lane Police Headquarters. During a two-hour briefing, eight witnesses were brought in one by one for questioning, and the assembled detectives were shown what was described as a real-life murder-hunt movie film 
documenting the known crime scenes. In fact, it was the very first time a film crew had been used to assist an investigation in the Midlands. Surviving fragments of the film show a close-up of the spinney at Wasson, a hollow beneath the elder tree where Fred's body had been discovered, uneven ground peppered with rubble and foliage. But in grainy black and white, it's hard to make out the wood from the trees, quite literally. The camera then shifts to Stanley Road, and we're looking at an old police van parked up outside Jeff's shop, used as a mobile incident room for the interviewing of passers-by. Two CID men in suits and ties with greased back hair are seen taping montaged posters to the side of the van and also to the window of Jeff's shop. On the poster are three black and white photographs. The Austin A30 van, a portrait of Fred in his wedding suit looking somewhat nervous, and lastly, a wistful-looking perro, the Black Poodle, as if appealing to his master. And at the top of the poster, in capitals, was written, Have you seen him? And I remember as well the dog, because Quinton Police Station um, is on Quinton Road West. Do you know Quinton Road West? If you walk past there, they used to have a notice board outside. And for ages, there was a picture of the poodle <laughs> in this intrigue. And I think it might have said Jeff's murder or something like that. And I think it was, had you seen this dog? Somehow it's the pathos of the orphaned poodle which really appeals to local youngsters. Imagining they might be in an Enid Blyton novel. The sweet shop man has been done in. But what happened to his little dog? Can he be found? And if so, can he reveal the identity of the killer? No, I used to walk past that and see this little dog in this picture. And he was there for ages outside Quinton Police Station. We were full of it. It was buzzing. So what did happen to Perro on the night of the murder? At about 10.30pm on the evening of Maundy Thursday, there'd been a sighting of Fred's grey van with its distinctive number plate, Tom 89, parked on Vicarage Road, Langley. Fifteen minutes later, at 10.45, the van is seen again, but this time parked up at the rear of the sweet shop at 12 Stanley Road. But... Simultaneous to this second sighting at 10.45, Frida White is walking her dog along Reservoir Road in Langley when she sees a black poodle alone and in an agitated state as it disappears into a nearby garage. On the morning of Easter Sunday, two and a half days later, police were making door-to-door inquiries across the Langley area. A Mr Frederick Cannon was able to identify the dog in the poster as the poodle taking refuge in his garage in Reservoir Road. Perro had been found, tired and hungry, but alive and unhurt. His red studded collar, however, with the nameplate revealing Fred's Stanley Road address, was missing. And despite an artist's sketch published in the press, it was never recovered. The killer had surely removed it to stall identification and a connection with its owner. But how and why could Perro end up in this part of Langley, two miles north of either Jeff's shop or Wally Woods? It seems unlikely he would have found his own way to this unfamiliar spot.
was the dog causing too much commotion in the van on that fateful journey between Vicarage Road and the shop. With his master bloodied and unconscious in the back, perhaps already dead. Had Perrault been trying to protect Fred from his attackers, attracting too much attention? The murderer and his accomplice had shown Fred little mercy, but maybe the helplessness of the dog appealed to their conscience. It's easy to imagine in a film version of this story a woman's sympathies for Perrault overruling the killer's heartlessness. It might be a gamble to release the dog, but by removing his distinctive red collar it might slow down the trail, provide a decoy perhaps, and surely Perrault would never lead the police to the killer. Back in the 50s, the four-legged movie star Lassie would always save the day by outsmarting the baddie. Kids of the time had seen these films and knew this. They also knew that going to take the dog for a walk could be uttered by grown-ups with a knowing subtext. But the innocent intentions of Fred's nightly strolls in Wally Woods around the back of the eighth tee could never be questioned so long as his four-legged companion was with him. Even now, if you mention Wally Woods and they know your age, they'd go, oh, it did have a reputation. And I think it was something called the Monkey Run opposite. The Monkey Run is a colloquial term for anywhere where women were picked up or you did put your courting, for instance, anywhere where boys met girls. Every area would have a monkey run, you know, where that was where they um, did their first initial contacts. And apparently, well, he would walk his dog along there, but where he picked up the women was in Barclay Road. It's, it's quite a quiet area. You're joking, aren't you? Barclay Road? It's a boshish road in Schmeddy. And apparently that was where my mother said he used to pick up the women. And do you know how she knew this? Betty. Betty told her. Betty told her? If this is true, then, according to Alan Dunnaker's mother, who managed the grocer's shop in Stanley Road, and who she would confide in, Betty Jeffs did know about her husband's nighttime shenanigans, despite saying contrary to the press. By keeping quiet, was she trying to protect her murdered husband's reputation? Or her own reputation, and that of the business, as press speculations tried to wring ever more salacious tidbits from the story. You see, back in those times, divorce was a dreadful thing. Um, a woman who was, if you had a bad marriage, you had to make the best of it, and someone who was divorced was, was looked down upon a, as a little bit of a slut or a prostitute. In the tight-knit neighbourhood around Stanley Road, where bad news travels quickly, one can imagine plenty of judgmental gossip from the curtain twitches of Worley. Since the autumn of 56, Betty herself had been living away in the rural fringes of Solihull, Warwickshire, with a new partner, soon to be husband. It would have been in her best interests to keep a low profile and pretend that everything had been amicable between her and Fred, despite volatility in their relationship. She would inform the inquest that Fred had agreed to a divorce in the week before his death, and soon after she'd be able to start afresh with a new married name, 
trying to forget this part of her life had ever happened. In truth, this may not have been the innocent age so fondly remembered by the youngsters of the time. But their parents did not volunteer information so easily back then. My own grandmother, Alice, was not particularly forthcoming about her brother-in-law, Fred. And it was only by being so curious that I started to put the first jigsaw pieces together. The shadow and the shame surrounding his murder, whether the stories were true or not, would hang in that Quinton air for decades. As for Betty, I struggled to find a version of events from her perspective, or to find out what happened to her, or Perro, after the murder. And poor, traumatised Perro, or Scruffy Dog as he was to be renamed by Betty, the only known witness to the crime, but who cannot talk, would take the memory of what happened in Woolly Woods to his own grave. But... In what I now realise was an extraordinary encounter, a childhood friend of her daughter heard about the project and came to see my live performance of the story. I know it would have come as a terrible shock to find out about Betty's previous life as a character in this grim narrative, but it helped me paint a more balanced picture of the Jeff's story. And it was comforting to discover that Betty's daughter and her friends would spend their earliest years with Scruffy Dog as companion, completely oblivious to his historic trauma. After learning this detail, I was able to relay it to my dad, by now in a hospital bed, and his younger sister, Elizabeth, who was visiting him. Dad had inherited my nan's ability to deflect any emotional vulnerability with a dry humour or dismissive shrug, but news of the happy ending for Perro caught him off guard. The crack in his breath was momentary, but audible, and I could see him work to stifle the tears. I don't ever remember seeing Dad cry, but this reminded me of when we were little, and he told us, somewhat sardonically, that he wouldn't watch a Lassie film with us because they'd always used to make him blub. So to all the youngsters of Quinton and Wally who felt the impact of Fred Jeff's murder, whose imaginations were lit up or scarred by those tragic events and the rumour mill that persisted thereafter, know there is one part of the story at least we can put to rest. That the little black poodle from the Stanley Road sweet shop, Peril, later responding to the name Scruffy, would soon become a little girl's playmate and live happily ever after. Devoted loyalty, you know. You only get that from the dark room. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of my dad, Michael John Rose. Born 9th of September 1937, died 19th of February 2020. Fred Jeff's The Sweet Shop Murder is created by me, Graham Rose. 
with original music and sound design by Fox and Russia, and direction from Steve Johnston. This podcast series is made possible with the support of Black Country Touring, and the original theatre production was supported by the Birmingham Rep and the Arts Council of England. If you'd like to rate, review, or tell us who done it, please get in touch. Hashtag Fred Jeffs. <laughs>